This is The Guardian. Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96 after 70 years on the throne. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. She swore in 15 prime ministers, and not least in the endless turbulence of the last 10 or 15 years, she was a symbol of continuity and she gave some people a vivid connection with the more stable period of British history. Now we're in the midst of a period of deep social and political instability and a new transfer of political power. And so you can only ask, what's on the horizon? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnists Gabby Hinsliff and Gavin Barwell, the former Downing Street Chief of Staff under Theresa May, who's a member of the Privy Council, the Head of State's formal body of advisers, and in his capacity as a government whip, he was an officer of the Royal Household. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, John. Um, today, we're going to be looking at what we know about the Queen, her 70-year reign, and the role she played within the British political system. We're also going to be talking about the many, many ways um, that her death will impact on Britain and British politics and what it might mean for the future. Um, let's start by listening to Liz Truss, who's been um, the Prime Minister for a matter of days, making a statement immediately after the Queen's passing outside Downing Street. Through thick and thin, Queen Elizabeth II provided us with the stability and the strength that we needed. She was the very spirit of Great Britain and that spirit will endure. She has been our longest ever reigning monarch. It's an extraordinary achievement to have presided with such dignity and grace for 70 years. Let's remind ourselves of the Queen's main functions as Head of State. She appointed Prime Ministers and all other Ministers. She opened new sessions of Parliament. She gave royal assent to bills passed by Parliament, signifying that they became law, but there was much more to it than that. We got a sense of the relationship between Prime Ministers and the Queen this morning. Here's Theresa May on Radio 4's Today programme discussing her weekly audience with the Queen. Officially it's called an audience, but it was a conversation and it was a conversation with somebody who was immensely knowledgeable, who did her red boxes, who read the, the, her papers, who knew what was going on who'd had that tremendous experience over the years of her reign, who knew, as he said, many of the world leaders. Um, and I always say it was that one meeting a prime minister went into when they knew that nothing that was said was going to be briefed to the press or leaked afterwards. Gavin, you were chief of staff to Theresa May when she was prime minister at that time. What do you remember about your sort of impression of those meetings. It's interesting that they're unique in the sense that um, they're, they're free of public attention and scrutiny and so on. They're private meetings. They, they are so private. The Prime Minister didn't used to discuss with me what went on in them. <laughs> um, you know, you, don't, you, don't, you wouldn't take your political advisor with you. So it was probably the only meeting in her diary each week that I would never go to. She would take her principal private secretary, the head civil servant in number 10, uh, and all she ever said to me about it was, was really the essence of what you've just quoted there, that she found them incredibly useful because of the huge historical experience of the person that she was speaking to and because 
you know, given the enormous pressure that she was under, she could unburden herself in those meetings and talk frankly, knowing the one meeting every week that where she knew that it wouldn't leak out. So we know nothing about them, but it's clear from listening to people like Theresa May and John Major, Gabby, that they were more than a formality. Yes, they were a lot more than a formality. I mean, they're the nexus of the relationship between sort of the palace and, and government. They're an exchange, you know, she's expecting to be informed and have explained to her and go into the detail of what government is doing. Um, uh, but also, you know, there, there is a flow of information back the other way, I mean, if you were, and that wasn't just true of her audiences with, with prime ministers, actually, if you were a sort of foreign secretary or foreign minister in conversation with her, you could be, you know, talking about, you know, a meeting that you just had with a foreign head of state. And she'd say, oh, I remember his father said X, you know, and you'd suddenly realise that she had 30, 40 years of experience of, you know, inside out of dealing with this country and with the governance of this country. And, and you'd been foreign secretary for five minutes. So, you know, there is a sort of repository, an institutional memory there, a repository of knowledge that, you know, that could be used by governments of the day. And Tony Blair used to say exactly the same thing um, that Theresa May said, that, you know, this was a a confidential relationship, almost a sort of confessional relationship, in the sense that you could trust her. Where you knew she wasn't making notes for her memoirs, unlike everyone else that you spoke to in cabinet. She wasn't ever. She didn't. Have, she wasn't a competitive threat to you in the way that that other politicians are. And she had a relationship with other heads of state that was different from the relationship that a prime minister has. It's interesting that idea of sort of deep, long sort of institutional memory, particularly at a point now when. Politics seems to move through these great clear-outs every 18 months or two years, and it's it's very hard to identify where the institutional memory is. Gavin, um, briefly, and I don't know how much you're allowed to tell us, can you just give us a flavour of what it is in terms of the relationship between people from politics and the monarch about, um, A, being a member of the Privy Council, and then, B, a role I didn't know about that you told me about just before we started doing this, that in your capacity as a government whip, you were an officer of the royal household. So what sort of interactions did both those things involve? So it's a Privy Council relatively limited. Every now and then there'll be a meeting of a very small subgroup of the Privy Council if there are certain things that need to be dealt with. I was only uh, a brief period where I was a Privy Councillor and I'm still active as an MP because I, I got the Privy Councillorship very shortly before I lost my seat. The whip role was a, was a fascinating one. So just very briefly... The numbers two, three and four in the government whips office are also officers of the royal household. So when you get the job, you get a private audience with the Queen where she gives you a wand of office, which is like a like a snooker cue, essentially. Um, and you have uh, three jobs. You escort Her Majesty or other members of the royal family at the royal garden parties. You escort her at the diplomatic reception. And you escort her to Parliament for the state opening of Parliament. And indeed, the, the, the number four in the whip's office, the vice chamberlain, is held as a hostage at Buckingham Palace while Her Majesty goes uh, to Parliament to, to open it. And this dates back, if you think about the history of it, post-Civil War. Um, you know, Parliament was nervous that the monarch, had, Charles I, had brought troops into the House of Commons. And the new king was nervous that Parliament had ultimately executed his father. So a sort of deal was done that the monarch can't go to the House of Commons anymore. That's why the state opening takes place in the House of Lords. And that when they do come to Parliament, an MP is held hostage pending the monarch's um, safe return. So I had a number of private discussions with her during the year and a bit when I was doing that uh, role. What was she like? 
so it's it's not just the history point that Gabby covered so well, the kind of institutional knowledge. She was very, very well informed about contemporary politics. She clearly took very seriously the the box note she would have been getting about what her government uh, was doing. Uh, and so I would say a conversation with her about politics, she was absolutely as on the ball as any political journalist or sort of fellow MP that you'd have a conversation with about what was going on right now, as well as having that depth of historical perspective that she could bring to things. But that's not just about knowledge of the wider world, is it? So she she was up to speed on factional tensions that get in the way of government and who's in and who's out and who's acting up and who's not, all of that stuff. Yeah, so the, the vice chamberlain, uh, so this is the number four in the government's whip office, writes her a daily report on what's going on in Parliament. And she clearly read them. And they're I mean, I, I, there's not a job I have to do, but I watched colleagues doing it and she she enjoyed them being a little bit irrever- irreverent and including a little bit of gossip. So she was exactly, as you say, not just informed about the legislation that was going through and what it was going to do, but she had a good reading of what was going on within our politics. Now, by and large, to state the obvious, one of her great talents, which is reflected in the tributes we've heard since she died, was this very resolute ability, determination, however you present it, to sort of stay out. So so that's quite a balance to strike, as well as being sort of intimately aware of all of these things, to do what a constitutional monarch has to do, which is not to be political, right? But nonetheless, we all know that 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 can't hold permanently and there are there are inevitably moments of tension all the rest of it i was reading overnight about the fact that she did not like mrs thatcher's stance on sanctions against apartheid south africa because she the queen took the side of um political leaders and heads of state in the commonwealth who wanted sanctions placed on apartheid south africa that's one example but there've been other ones more recently inevitably i suppose because of how turbulent politics has been over the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, Gabby, one that obviously springs to mind, this is very recent stuff, really, is about Boris Johnson. I mean, the the time Boris Johnson had in office was not easy for the relationship between the head of state and the prime minister. No, it wasn't. I mean, he got off to an unfortunate start by after his first meeting uh, with the Queen coming out and saying she told me she didn't know why anyone would want the job. And it's 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 a very strictly observed convention that nobody ever discusses what goes on in an audience with the Queen. So that wasn't great. But more seriously, then he had to formally apologise to her, giving her misleading advice as to the legality of the proroguing of Parliament in you know just the first few months of, of being prime minister. But I think the sort of the low point of that relationship, I would have said, was was obviously around the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. I think everyone remembers that image of the Queen sitting alone in her funeral pew, observing social distance, because it was always important to her that uh, she did and she endured whatever her subjects did. And that goes back to, you know, her father keeping the whole family in London during the Blitz and so on and so on. You know, it's a very important symbol of... um, the way the world's lives are enmeshed with national lives. And of course, we now know that on the evening of the funeral, Boris Johnson's staff were holding a drunken, raucous leaving party in number 10 that breached lockdown rules. And so he had to uh, publicly, although Johnson wasn't at that particular party, had to apologise to her for that. And I think that was a real, that was, I, I cannot imagine what it must have been like to have to make that apology. Gavin, here's Liz Truss. She's been Prime Minister for a matter of days and now she's faced with this huge national moment that in some way 
she has to uh, not only deal with, but, but in the midst of it, she has to somehow sort of give voice to quite profound things about the national mood, history, all of that. You know, in terms of the sort of um, the the onus that's put on prime ministers, sort of rhetorically to 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 speak and speak well. That's a huge, huge thing. What's going on now? And and give me a sense of the of the of the responsibility that is, and and how that sits or might sit with her. So, on, on one level, it feels slightly off to talk about what does this mean for politics because it's a, you know, it's a it's a moment of sort of grief for the nation. But you're quite right, I think, to ask the question. I think this is quite a significant event for Liz Truss's premiership in two ways. First of all, she would have planned, I'm sure, a whole blitz of announcements and speeches and events during this initial period of her government, and a load of that is going to have to be put back during the period of mourning. There may be one or two things that have to carry on because of the the urgency of legislating for certain things. But secondly, as you said, it falls to the Prime Minister to try to speak for the country and how it's feeling about this event when I mean, you think back to the death of princess diana and I, you know i can still remember tony blair's words on on that occasion and that's i think i don't i don't mean this unkindly at all but it's probably a challenge for her she's probably if you were listing liz's strengths and the areas where she maybe wasn't so strong you probably wouldn't say she's a natural orator um so i think a lot of thought will be going into finding the right words and words that she's comfortable delivering you know that fit her style uh, of speaking that but that properly uh, capture the moment the only other observation i would make is you know i think if you if you look at the energy announcement that that was almost immediately overshadowed yesterday you know the government was in a great rush to do that and it, it this period is going to give them a little bit of time to privately think about things before we get back to anything that we would recognize as politics as usual let's just talk about the uh, the run of events um over the next days and weeks, as far as Parliament is concerned. I think Parliament is sitting on Friday from midday till 10pm, and then it sits again on Saturday uh, from 2pm for members, I think, to pay tribute to the new king. But um, as Gavin's just said, politics, I mean, arguably, this will feel quite strange, I suppose, because we all know the frantic mood politics was in immediately before the Queen died. But Politics is going to be put on hold for what will feel like a very long time, right, Gabby? Well, there are 10 days of official mourning before um, state funeral, and that's the period where, you know, it, it, it's going to feel almost like a purder before a budget in a way, you know, that that time when everything's just put on hold, but you're, and there's no sort of normal legislative business. But there's also going to be, I think, a suspension in what you would call campaigning politics. I mean, I think for Keir Starmer, there's there's going to be a consideration, which is, are you supposed to come out with all guns blazing against, you know, the Prime Minister now? Probably not. It feels a bit like when something terrible happens during an election campaign and sort of hostilities are suspended for a bit, there'll be a period of national coming together. People will want to talk about unifying things, not um, divisive things. So I think there'll probably be a sort of period of um, silence and respite from the opposition. But do you think that do you think that that may last for quite a while? Mightn't it? In other words, the resumption of what we might understand as normal politics might be gradual, mightn't it? In the sense that you've got a coronation coming and all of that. So do you think this will go on longer than the period of mourning? No. In, in, this, in this case, 
honestly, no, because I think there's so much, there's so much going on. You know, there's a huge budget that has to come um, before the end of this month that explains exactly how the energy announcement that, you know, is going to be paid for, where the money's going to come from, how much it's going to cost. Huge. I mean, there is, there's going to be a pent up rush of things that, that Liz Truss would have done. You know, I think we're going to come back pretty quickly um, to normal politics. And there will be an impatience for that to happen because, you know, we might be, the rest of the world is 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 getting on with things. You know, Vladimir Putin and the war in, Putin, in Ukraine and the sort of, you know, gas, gas markets are not, you know, also in abeyance just because our Queen has died, to be blunt. I want to talk now about the Queen as a kind of symbolic connection between the United Kingdom now and the United Kingdom of 70 years ago, the Second World War, and the Queen really as a symbol of at least half, probably more than that of the 20th century. I mean, I think our lingering affinity or identification with that period has its good and bad sides. A lot of people quite cynically played it up in the midst of Brexit. But also, in the midst of the kind of awful crises that we're faced with now, that idea of continuity and a a link with the past gave um, a lot of people at least some solace and comfort. And in a very symbolic way, that connection has gone. And that means something, doesn't it? I think so, yes. I think... um... I think she's a connection in in two ways. I mean, I think for very many people in this country, really anyone up into their mid to late seventies, she's she's been there the whole of our lives, and um, it probably depends on what kind of person you are. I'm naturally quite a small c conservative person, and the world changes very fast now, and having some things around you that are stable is is kind of reassuring. So we've lost one of those kind of bedrocks in our lives, I guess. And then the other thing, John, I would say is that she's a sort of connection between us as well. I mean, imagine a world where we had a sort of President Johnson and inevitably a politician would be a very divisive figure. Some people would like them and some people wouldn't like them. But I think Her Majesty managed by staying out of politics to be at least for the vast majority of people. There are obviously some who take a different view, but for the vast majority figure, a kind of unifying figure for the country something someone who everybody could kind of identify with and a part of britishness in that sense yeah i mean i'm 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 a republican i i i disagree with the institution of monarchy but but i can see and understand and almost agree with exactly what you're saying and i certainly think she was very, very good at expressing that important aspect, really, really important aspect of her role. The obvious one that springs to mind is just after that first lockdown started, when she was really, she was really good, wasn't she? I mean, let's be honest. What she, what she said on telly in that statement was very, very well done. And without being too heavy-handed about it, the fact that it ended with "We'll meet again" made all that stuff that I referenced a moment ago very, very real. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. And although the Britain of 1940 relative to now is completely unrecognisable, we're an utterly different country. There's no question of that. We, we kind of do believe, and there are good reasons why we believe, that there's something essential that runs between those two periods. And she... She was very, very good at positioning herself as the representation of exactly that stuff, Gabby. 
all of that is true, except that I think the brilliance of the Queen was constancy and change. She, you know, the monarchy, if you think about the sort of evolution that the institution of monarchy has undergone since 1952, the changes she sort of had to sort of deal with relatively graciously. You know, her father was emperor of India, you know, <laughs> you and she's the she's the queen of retreat from empire. The queen of, you know, the queen that presides over growing independence, changing relationship between the Commonwealth and the UK. She's the queen who dealt with sort of the opening up of the monarchy to sort of modern media to, you know, I think back to the 2012 Olympics and that, you know, sheer astonishment when the queen did the James Bond skit. You think, my God, that's the actual queen. You know, that's the actual queen is just is, you know, taking part in this thing that's, you know, fundamentally unserious, but rather joyous and there's no way you know 20 years ago the monarch would have done that and I think the chance for Prince Charles is going to be to continue that evolutionary path to adapt to changing times. Okay we'll talk about him in a minute but there is something really because of the fact that the times we're faced with all of a sudden feel so profoundly worrying right I mean this is a very very turbulent time whether you're talking about the energy crisis the war in Ukraine that largely caused it Brexit and all its after effects, climate and all that, you know. I mean, compared to the world of 25 years ago, say, the 1990s, this is a much more sort of fretful reality we're faced with. And then the loss of that symbol of continuity inevitably makes it feel all the more fretful and worrying. That's true, isn't it? It's definitely true. The Bond sketch at at the opening of the Olympics, to me, that, I mean, it's only 10 years ago, but it feels like a completely different world. It was kind of the, the high point of... You know, if I think of my life and how the UK I felt was performing in the world and it's standing yeah. in the world, that felt yeah. like a real high point. That was the end of the long 1990s, wasn't it? Yeah. That was a country at ease with itself. And that's why the Queen yeah. was so perfect with that, because you just thought she is relaxed as well. And we all are. Yeah, we were wrong about that, it turns out. But. but it is true, isn't it? As a matter of the most awful coincidence, the Queen's death in, in, in the midst of this sort of awful heightened sense of crisis we're in the, in the midst of, it feels like it's part of the same moment i think it, it compounds people's sense of suddenly emerging blinking into this new world that doesn't make much sense yes i think as you say the country is just going through a really difficult period at the moment and this would have been a very sad day whenever it had happened but to happen at this moment feels particularly painful um gabby mentioned um the new king charles iii a moment ago now he certainly, um, thus far, has been a very, very different senior royal from his mother in terms of the sort of intersection between his public persona and politics. Here he is talking to the BBC's Justin Roller ahead of the Global COP26 summit. What we're doing with our own economy is to disrupt nature's economy by not following that circular pattern. We've created a linear one, which imagines you can go on forever creating ever more growth and ever more, you know, changing everything. You're without understanding that actually you have to fit together with nature. So let me ask you this. Is our government doing enough to make these things happen? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> the Queen would never, ever have spoken like that. I mean, that's, that's a plain fact, it seems to me. And, and you wonder, now that he's the king, I mean, that's not suddenly going to stop, is it? We are going to be in a, in a slightly more, what's the word, sort of choppy, slightly unpredictable phase of the existence of the monarchy and its relationship with politics, Gabby? I think it's going to have to change um, to some extent. And he's not an idiot. You know, he does, I think he does 
realize that um you know being king is very different from being the heir and that there's a freedom to articulate well not much freedom but he has had some freedom to articulate personal interests and views over the last you know years I wouldn't expect him to continue doing that but on the other hand you you can't forget you can't unhear the things that we we know he thinks and occasionally you know that would happen during the Queen's reign, you would think, you know, for, I remember it, for example, when New Labour was was wanting to ban hunting, you know, you, you she didn't have to say it, but you felt that the Queen might have had a different view about country sports, shall we say, than um, than Tony Blair did. Um, and, and it was hard to sort of unsee that. Um, and I think that will be the tension for, I, I called him Prince Charles, I think, a minute ago. He's not Prince Charles anymore, he's King Charles. And then, you know, the speed with which that happens, you know, the the queen dies and literally it's it's long live the king is hard for us to get used to never mind um for him and there is going to be some feeling of his way into that new role and there is perhaps going to be some reinterpretation of that role but i don't think the country will accept a political monarch the whole point is that you know the monarchy has these extraordinary powers to dissolve parliament to invite people to form a new government you know and we tolerate those powers in a way because they're not used and because we do not somehow imagine that the monarch would use them out of their own, you know, partisan interest. But you, you can't sustain that fantasy, as it were, if um, it's very clear what the monarch thinks about any given issue of the day. Gavin, were you ever sort of directly aware of Prince Charles's occasional, the then Prince Charles's occasional incursions into politics? Uh, no more than you would have been in the public domain. Um I mean, obviously, there's there's plenty of evidence on the record of right of letters he's written to ministers at various points. Um, I, I, I agree with what Gabby said. I think the monarch cannot directly intrude into party politics, but Gabby was just eulogising over how Queen Elizabeth developed the monarchy, changed it, adapted it over time, and I think. King Charles will do the same, but there are there are limits to what he can do as monarch that where maybe he had a bit more freedom for manoeuvre as um, the Prince of Wales. I mean, I do think on environmentalism, it's right to say he was right to sound warnings on this issue. Um, but there are, you know, once you're once you're in the position of monarch, you can't intrude into the party political debate. So in other words, it would drive uh, some of your former Conservative colleagues mad. But um, would you expect, therefore, now he's king, that at least occasionally he will talk about the climate emergency and and what it what it demands of politics and politicians? And, and the government the government may want him to do that sometime. I mean, it's worth I don't remembering. Think trust will. It's worth remembering that the government encouraged members of the royal family to participate in the COP twenty six conference. It was useful, and I, I I have to be very careful what I say here. Um. There are occasions when governments have found Her Majesty's, the, the, you know, Queen Elizabeth's historical perspective and the respect she was held by some other world leaders of use. It doesn't mean she can function like a head of government, but there are definitely occasions when she's meeting with somebody else. And I'm sure prime ministers will have spoken to her and said, this is, the, this is what we're trying to achieve here. So sometimes having members of the royal family speak on issues that are not party politically contentious, but are still small p political, can be useful to a government. Um, but I agree with what Gabby said. King Charles is going to have to behave differently now he is King Charles. 
than he was able to do when he was Prince Charles. I actually think the cli- that climate may be one of the issues of less tension in that, I mean, when he started talking about it, Prince Charles was out on a sort of a bit more of a limb. You know, this was a very partisan question. And I think now, you know, you, you were still in an era of climate deniers versus, you know, and arguing about whether global warming was real. Whereas I think it's easier for the royal, you know, and the Duke of Cambridge has, has ventured into the same territory now. And I think it's because it's easier. There's a sort of certain amount of settled consensus that yes climate change is real yes it's bad yes we're supposed to do something about it yes we're committed to net zero and you know none of that is is any more controversial territory i mean obviously there are clearly going to be you know you know issues about how we reach net zero where we may have a view or may not have a view but i think some of the sting has been taken out of that i would watch for um any kind of clash over issues around farming and I and agriculture policy. And I think also there's some really difficult ground to be um, negotiated between palace and government about our relationship with the Commonwealth and issues like apologies for slavery, reparations for slavery. You know, all of all of that stuff is really political um, territory and yet territory that the royal family cannot avoid. I mean, this is an interesting juncture for the Commonwealth, certainly in the sense that, as we all know, many leaders of Commonwealth countries have been making quite loud noises about um, moving away from um, the idea that the British monarch is their head of state and so on. And I suppose because just this is a is a breakpoint of some description, that stuff is likely to intensify. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I think there will probably... I don't think it will happen immediately out of respect for mourning for Her Majesty, but I'm almost certain that there are some places around the world that delayed having this debate out of respect to Queen Elizabeth. And once a reasonable amount of time has passed, you may find that debate beginning in a few places. And those are decisions for those countries to take. And it needn't be um, problematic to the the future of the Commonwealth, because obviously there are plenty of countries in the Commonwealth that for whom Prince Charles is not the head of state. But there is an enduring historical connection that both sides value. Just to finish, I just thought I'd ask you both a fairly straightforward question, which is sort of how you feel in this moment. I mean, as I said earlier, um, I'm not an ardent royalist, but the sense of this as a big moment in British history, and as I said earlier, just because of this awful coincidence of timing this feeling I have that some symbol, a very important symbol of our continuity with with the past is no longer there. And so it feels like we're being sort of shoved all the harder into this very uncertain, worrying world that none of us have really got the map for. I suppose that's what I feel like. I've I've had this sense since 2008 that this is a very, very different world. But I suppose because monarchy is meant to be symbolic, that feeling really, really, really feels very profound now. Gabby, how do you feel in this moment? It was a very striking thing yesterday, hearing that the Queen's died. I mean, that that alone is very, very sobering. I've been surprised by um, how sad I felt, actually. Thinking, you know, I don't know her. She doesn't play any part in my everyday life. We've, You know, you know she was 96. It's not a surprise. You know, I, I had thought we've all been expecting this moment to come and I won't you know feel a great deal when it does and I was surprised by how sad I was and how shocked really even though it's it's not 
shocking. And I think, you know, my my phone was buzzing for an hour after the news came in with friends saying exactly the same thing by WhatsApp. You know, why am I crying? I didn't know the Queen. And somehow you are kind of caught up in this in this upswell of national grief that I'm sure, you know, is partly composed of people remembering other griefs and other losses that they've had. You know, a lot of people have been bereaved over the last few years of the pandemic. And a lot of people will have had that, you know, long drive up the motorway to the bedside kind of thing. It evokes all sorts of personal memories for people. But it's also um, one of those few moments where you uh, feel the same thing is happening to all of us at the same time, which very happily happens very rarely in kind of fairly fractured world we live in. Gabby. Yeah, I think I think Gabby's last point is how I feel. It's a, it's a common experience. Um countries are strange things. You know, we there's lots of differences between us. We're divided on all sorts of ways, but she was one of the things that bound us together and and a sort of symbol of constancy in a very rapidly changing world and I was thinking last night when I was going to bed, I was sort of thinking about it. And, and to me, the two sort of memories that stood out are both recent ones. One was her sitting in the chapel on her own at um, Prince Philip's funeral and providing such a contrast with the way ministers in the, you know, people, prime minister and the people around him behaved. And I think more generally, she's provided during her life an example of duty and service that so many of her ministers have not been able to match. And then the second one was the, from the Platinum Jubilee celebrations, the sketch with Paddington Bear. You would like a marmalade sandwich? I always keep one for emergencies. So do I. I keep mine in here. Oh. For later. It's quite hard to say what you know what what is Britishness, right? Because actually, people all around the world are basically the same. But there was something quintessentially British about that, and it, it's uh, I think those two very contrasting images of her tell you something about the person. It was also the most brilliant piece of political signalling that that Paddington thing, because you could either see it as, you know, oh, how lovely. Here's a great grandmother, you know, doing a, a thing for children with a children's character. But for some people, particularly in Jewish community, you know, Paddington Bear represents uh, refugees because his, his creator, Michael Bond, has always said that, you know, the idea came from the kinder transport and Jewish children coming to, to the UK um, to escape the Nazis. But also I didn't realise until I was reading um, a biography of, President Zelensky recently in Ukraine, Zelensky is best known for having voiced Paddington in the Ukrainian version of the films. And you would have, you know, depending on where you were watching that skit in the world, you would have had very different feelings about what message she was trying to convey. And I don't think the Queen would ever have been specific about what message she was trying to convey. But that was the point. She allowed you to read into her what you needed to read into her. It's interesting, isn't it? Talking about those sorts of principles or qualities of duty and service and all the rest of it. I mean, it might be a bit sentimental to look back to the politics of sort of 30 or 40 years ago and say there was a bit more of that around, but I think there probably was. And I think that's that's another reason, I think, why her death feels like such a profound moment. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Uh, most importantly, thank you uh, to Gavin and Gabby for joining us this morning. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Pleasure. Um, it only falls to me to say that this episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. 
This is The Guardian. 